Um, just a heads up, we're actually departing from our series in Romans uh, to have a more Reformation-oriented theme for our meditations today. But I want to read the whole of this chapter, such a crucial chapter, really just driving home the truth of the whole book in the latter verses of this chapter. But um, in some ways, the reading here will be more of a sermon itself than my remarks. But let's then give attention to the public reading of God's Word, Romans 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, was the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more by the grace of God, And the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so was the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one. Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous." Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We trust again the Lord to add His blessing to the public reading 
of his inspired word. Let's do bow our heads and our hearts together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pause again and wonder at the words that we've read. Lord, in many ways, to many gathered here, perhaps all, these are very familiar words, bringing familiar truths, and yet, truths, if indeed we are familiar with them, that never lose their freshness, never lose their power. Lord, may it never be for us. May we constantly marvel and wonder at the, the grace, the wisdom, and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us even in such days as we're found living in to be able to see clearly that eternal truth. Let all the stuff that surrounds us take its place underneath that. Trusting in the sovereignty of our God, the one who has so graciously and sovereignly provided for our salvation, the same one will graciously and sovereignly in the workings of his providence deal with everything that concerns us, indeed every affair of the world. Grant us grace. Grant us, Lord, a measure of wisdom as we consider your word and we consider our obligations underneath it. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. It is something of a, an unusual occurrence to say the words that we're deviating from our series in Romans to consider a Reformation theme. Normally, we are preaching somewhere else at this season of the year, and we deviate from that theme to come to the book of Romans and to preach justification from it. I was looking through my files. It's a hard thing to explain to the seminary students. Paper, tabulated, separating file dividers, file boxes. Do they make them anymore? I don't know. Um, but I was looking through my files of sermons for Reformation Day. I really think I only have ever preached three sermons uh, on Reformation Sunday. You just tweak the outline a little bit, make it seem a little bit different. Always, well, most frequently at least, just preaching a message on justification by faith alone. Perhaps some other themes mingled in as we'll seek to present them today. I don't possess the gift, or maybe it's the discipline, of preaching historical messages uh, at any season, and even perhaps on Reformation Sunday as we seek to call and remember the Sunday closest to that date of Luther's posting of the 95 Theses. I've been mightily challenged and blessed under historical preaching, but I just usually find myself getting lost in the detail and wanting to get back to the Scriptures not that those messages are devoid of scriptures. But as I looked through my varied notes, I was very tempted this year to resurrect a very, very old sermon, old enough that this auditorium, if you can call it such, didn't exist when it was preached, on the law of God and how it applies to us both prior to and subsequent to our conversion. But I thought 
rather than going in that regard, because we'll certainly come to that theme very particularly as we progress in Romans here, some more application with regard to the Reformation itself, again, not purely from a historical perspective, but as I thought of it, I know there's some circles in which the Reformation is remembered. Some of the emails and blogs or whatever that come my way that I pay attention to anyway are mindful of it every October and offer themes and studies and so forth surrounding Luther and Calvin and the chief reformers. And I thank God for those remembrances. But I wonder just how prominent that memory is in the heart and minds of the church at large. I wonder if the question comes, is the Reformation relevant today? If I remember what these old guys did so many hundred years ago, 505 years ago, tomorrow it was. Well, can I answer that question with a resounding yes? The Reformation is still relevant today, not really for the the lives and the history of those men in their own right. They're men we respect and honor. We, Lord willing, will spend eternity with in glory. But the truths they rediscovered, the truths they published to their age, the benefit that we still receive from the republication of those truths in those days, of the Reformation. And so I ask the question, is the Reformation still relevant today? An answer with a resounding yes. And I want to underscore that answer with three thoughts today, following them one upon another. And I would answer, it is still relevant, yes, first, because the Reformation, if we can just use that word that describes that time period and really all that transpired within it. Because it dealt with questions of eternal significance. It dealt with questions of eternal significance. If you studied history at all, if you look at the Reformation era, you know the things that surrounded it, both preceded it and followed it. There was a lot going on in Europe in those days. There was in every area of life really an upheaval that was transpiring. Dr. Panosian, dear soul that is now with the Lord, I remember him speaking to us about the different cultural revolutions that were taking place. We think often of revolution in the military sense and uh, uh, you know an armed uprising. He was speaking about the turning back to former things, the change from the status quo that was transpiring, again, in different areas of culture and life. Certainly in the religious, ecclesiastical realm that the Reformation was so attached to, but the political realm, the academic realm, all the aspects of culture were were undergoing tremendous transformation. It was actually in the providence of God that those transformations, that reevaluation of things as they were, 
that, again, under God's sovereignty and his providence, that the reformers were afforded a window of opportunity. There were those that had opened their Bibles and discovered the gospel in its pages before Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox. And many of them had paid for it with their lives. Because Rome would not let any challenge her authority. I remember one statement that Dr. Panosian made just to kind of get us to pause and think. When you look at what had gone before, and then you look at the period in itself, the very fact that Luther died a natural death is a testimony to the changes that were taking place in the world. But it's not just a piece of that sociological, historical, cultural period of change. God was moving. Now, secular historians can look at the period and they can even recognize that there was something different about the Reformers, something different about that movement. I remember one day, the second day of class, when I had a summer school course under Dr. Panosian on the Reformation. He asked us, I know I've shared this before, but we had a nice hefty little volume that was written by a secular historian on the Reformation era. But he asked us very plainly in a quiz that second day, what is the first sentence on the first page, or the first paragraph of the first page of your textbook say? Well, I didn't memorize the assignment, but he drew attention to it. The secular historian opened the introduction to his volume with these words. The Reformation of the 16th century had its inception in the search for the answer to a typically medieval question. A little bit of modern pride and unbelief and sarcasm in that little phrase, a typically medieval question. We wouldn't ask such things today. Don't need to. But then the pause. That question was, what must I do to be saved? And in the remainder of his introduction, he points out the fact that all these other cultural revolutions were taking place. Secular authorities were seeking to come out, of, out from under the control of church authorities. They wanted to skim a little bit of the money from their people more than... I digress. There was a vying for power between church and state. Who's going to have more sway? Who's going to control the lives of their subjects? There were class struggles that were going on. Again, many things that took the opportunity, if you will, of Luther and his preaching this gospel, and yet Europe being turned upside down to pursue different ends. But he pointed out that the chief reformers didn't concern themselves, by and large, with those other ends and purposes and aims. Because, again, from our perspective, the significance of that event in the providence and in the hand of God is the Reformation 
for these men and many, many of those that heard them. It didn't deal with so much questions of their pocketbooks and where their taxes went and whether they had to pay to get their relatives out of purgatory or not. It had to do with the gospel. It had to do with truth. It had to do with that question, what must I do to be saved? And it is a question, it's a truth of the gospel that should concern us in every age. And I think about our times. We're living in days, in many ways, of similar transition. Transition in some ways, perhaps going back the other direction. A corrupt church in the Middle Ages. And then to again borrow our dear brother's phrase, the mature emergence of the national state to to stem that tide and hold down that corrupted church's authority over the affairs of the people of their particular nations and states. You see the freedoms and even the prosperity that's come in the wake of Protestantism. But Europe now has turned more to the state, to a secular format, to a secular worship, if you will. What is following in its wake? Fearful. This is the casting off of truth and its sad results. Will the church, will a church, will a corrupted church seek to offer solutions to the problems of our modern day? Could it be possible that even a world leader could arise to address problems that we would like to see addressed and bring not a gospel answer, but an anti-Christian answer? Well, I don't seek to answer those questions today. I seek simply to come back to our opening statement. Reformation is still relevant today because it dealt with questions of eternal significance. And even the observation of that secular historian that the chief leaders of the Reformation, by and large, kept themselves free from those other things that were going on, as huge and even as important as many of them were. They were preachers of the gospel. They were publishers of the gospel. They took the gospel to their age, and God blessed it. The Reformation, primarily, for all the other things going on, was a season of revival. That's what should concern us. Questions of eternal significance. Our world has a host of problems, just as Luther's did. But if we let something other than the Gospel divert us from the Gospel, then we become part of the problem rather than the solution. You think of the things that are put before us today. So many issues. Think of race relations. 
the resurgence of charges and maybe even the presence of racism to a higher level than it was, say, a generation ago. How do we deal with racism? Well, if we let something other than the gospel, the need and the condition of the human heart divert us from how to deal with problems, then it becomes easy to take something like that and twist it. To perhaps uh, change or exchange one form of hate for another. To redirect hate from being pointed at one group of people to directing it at another group of people. And you can take that issue by issue. Class struggles and warfare. You know, the mean, nasty corporations. Well, do we raise up mean, nasty mobs? How are we going to see men treat one another the way they should? You want to know the answer to racism? It's history and struggles in the world. Justification by faith alone. Simple. The gospel. When I understand who and what I am as a creature created in God's image and yet sinful and rebellious and fallen as are all the other people that have ever dwelt upon this earth, fallen sons of Adam. And I come to understand the gospel. That God is in Christ Jesus provided a ransom for my soul. That I can be accepted in the Beloved. I can be justified by grace alone through faith alone. That gives me some currency to use in understanding how to deal with other men. Whatever race, whatever economic class, whatever nation they be from. That's a real answer. One of the things we should understand and take away from our study, our appreciation of the Reformers is they dealt with questions of eternal significance. That steered the boat. And that's what should steer us as we navigate the tumultuous waters of our modern times. Well, let me come secondly today. And again, we're giving a hasty generalization in our survey. Is the Reformation still relevant today? Yes, because it dealt with questions of eternal significance. Secondly, Because it discovered the right answers to those questions. I reread Luther's defense at the Diet at Worms. I thought of bringing the closing paragraph to that. That was one of the options in freshman speech when you had to do something of whatever length it was, and I chose that one. And you know, it's easy when you see the the last phrases of that paragraph Here I stand, I could do not else. God help me, amen. And, of course, that's the way I emphasized it in my speech when I gave it in 
speech class, but again, Dr. Panosian, who was the authority on Luther, at least that's what he wrote his dissertation on, (laughs) said, actually, from the records, it appears that Luther ended his defense with the words, unless I'm convinced by scriptures, uh, I'm summarizing here, they asked him to recant and disown his writings. He said, I can't disown anything. I can't. And that's where he ended. And he looked over at Melanchthon and his companions that are with him, and they're dumbfounded, like, you're dead. You just signed your death warrant. They're going to they're gonna burn you. And it was to them, he said, here I stand. I can't do anything else. God help me. Puts a little difference on the inflection when you're giving your speech. But here I say, these men discovered the right answers. And the things they put before us, and we think often of the five solas of the Reformation. You can look at, I think, a crystallization of those and the things I want to present here. I say, because it discovered the right answers. One of the chief areas with regard to the answers that the Reformers brought to the confusion, to the darkness of their times, if you will, was a presentation of the absolute authority of Scripture. That's where we get sola scriptura, Scripture alone. But the truth of God's Word, the fact that it is God's Word, that it is to this God that we will answer. That's why we better base everything we believe and practice on what He said and not what others say. You look at the pieces of that truth and we hastily submit them today. But the necessity of Scripture. That unless God speaks, unless God reveals Himself to us, we cannot be saved. We can't know Him. But He has thankfully chosen to do so. This is in contrast to rationalism. Those that think, well, man can find his own way. I've been proctoring Dr. Barrett's Old Testament introduction course this last, well, this is coming up week 9 of 10. And it just amazes me again to hear the arguments of the liberals. It was in really an attack on the Pentateuch, the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch that a lot of the original modernists, what we call liberal theologians, launched their attack against Scripture. They'd imbibed the evolutionary premise that Darwin brought into the world. It was applied in so many other disciplines. They said, oh, this is great. Let's apply it to religion. And so really what we have in the Bible is the evolution of religious thought among the Jews. And of course, these books that purport to be by Moses, we know that, well, let's see, Deuteronomy, maybe that's the book that they invented when Josiah, in his day, they found some book in the temple and took it. Yeah, they just wrote it then. That's a marvelous evolution of religion. It's getting better, you know, as it goes along. Well, let's just, uh, let's just write something new that we want to currently impose on everybody by making them think that's what was always true, and then we'll lie about where it came from. Has the religion evolved real well? 
if that's where they got to. I digress. It's staggering when you look really at our nation and really the Western world that had been so positively impacted by Protestantism and the Protestant denominations abandoned their belief in the inspiration of Scripture and said, well, this is just the evolution of men's religious thoughts. They just eliminated one of the pillars of their own movement, if you will. Let's deny that God has spoken. Let's remove the authority of Scripture. See what that does. Well, we're seeing it. Scripture also, reformers understood to be trying to get the other version of the word perspicuity. Perspicuous, I suppose. It's in contrast to clericalism. You know, you can't really read the Bible for yourself and understand what it says. You need me. You need the church to tell you what the Bible says. One of Rome's teachings is the coordinate authority of Scripture. They don't want to deny that. No, 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 we believe that. And then the, the teaching of the fathers, that's the church that's dead. And the magisterium, the current teaching office of the church, that's the church leaders that are alive. But whenever you put Scripture on a par with another authority, what happens? Well, that current authority tells you what the Bible is. So it just eliminates the Bible outright. And you're left at the mercy of the teachers of the church. And Luther said, and they had the credentials to say, I've read the fathers. I've read and I've heard what you men say. And one of the parts of that defense at Worms is it's clear as noonday that all this contradicts itself. It's got to be Scripture alone that I'm convinced by. And here, the Reformers put the Scriptures to the common man to read for himself what God has said. But also the sufficiency of Scripture. You think about sectarianism, cults, Rome itself, you could mingle in there. Some other authority, some other interpretation to be forced upon the Scriptures. They cast this off. They found the right answers with regard to Scripture. They found the right answers with regard to justification by faith alone, which of course we'll be delving into as we've seen. That's the theme of the book of Romans. I was really taken back as we looked a few weeks ago at the thesis statement, Romans 1, 16 and 17. From faith to faith, that phrase, not the way we would use it, and some are confused by it. Paul is saying there as we 
discovered as we went through there. It's by faith from first to last. It's entirely by faith that men are justified. And the quotation of the Old Testament, even the sequencing of the words, the just by faith shall live. How do we pass from death unto life? Or justification by faith. And it's from faith to faith. It's all of faith. Or we could put it in a 16th century phrase. It's by faith alone. That's the gospel. Hear the details of the gospel. I've used that phrase so many times over the years. But our modern evangelical church in this God-fearing and blessed nation came in the last century virtually to lose these truths. So much so that J.I. Packer's introductory essay to Owen's Death of Death, 1959 I think it was, later Packer had some problems, just footnote that. But he said Owen's thesis in his book could help in the most pressing need facing evangelical Christendom today, mid-20th century today. The recovery of the gospel. Thank God there's been a resurgence of interest in these truths. And we even speak of it as reformed theology. It's the theology that the reformers rediscovered. May God Help us to be as the reformers, only satisfied with discovering the right answers. But there's another one I want to emphasize here as well. The priesthood of the believer. Again, these are themes, they're they're doctrines, they're parts of the history of the Reformation. We we emphasize year by year and we, we deal with rightly so. But I want to again apply it where we are and where we live. You can look at the priesthood of the believer in contrast to Rome and the whole priestly caste and priestly system and the papacy, the the pinnacle of that. You can see how the term anti-Christian is rightly applied to Rome in our confessional substandards. Anti-Christ, anti-Christian is not just some theological curse word that you want to put on somebody and make everybody scared of them. Something that's anti-Christ. That prefix can mean and often does mean against. But anti also means instead of. And that's where you find Rome and you find the application of anti-Christian, anti-Christ, so applicable to the papacy, to the priesthood, to the mass. All of these unbiblical teachings of the Roman system. They present something consistently. They consistently present something instead of Christ. The priesthood of the believer. Men were reminded and shown in the Scriptures that they don't need a priest. Though often, and let us even as good Protestants pause and think about this, Often we want one. There's something in the fallen religious mind that wants a priest. I want somebody that can, for God, tell me, do this and you're okay. 
We want that. The reformers open their Bibles see that men stand before God on their own. That can be, should be, a frightening prospect. But then I I turn the page and I see I I flee to Christ. And this God that is justly angry at my sins has justly placed my sins on Jesus. Justly place Jesus' righteousness on me. I've said it often. I remind you again this Reformation Sunday. There's a little Romanist inside of each one of us. Rome presents the easy path of religion. Just plug in, and you're okay. Just just get on board with us. And you're okay. And we come. And how often does it become the case in the lives even of Protestant Christendom? Oh, we may not, though I think it's happened in different circles, we may not put something like apostolic succession together, although some of the Baptists and their trail of blood and you know, this perfect line of Baptist preachers and biblical baptisms reaching all the way back to John the Baptist, no matter what kind of historical contortions you have to do along the way to call some of these people orthodox. You're looking for some accepted heritage, some line that we can attach to. I think in this type of thinking that starts to deny this rediscovery of the priesthood of the believer, we can start thinking like this. To be able to say, I belong to the right church, becomes more important than being able to say, I understand and believe the truth. I put that to us as free Presbyterians. If you ever start a, a channel of thinking that I belong the right, to the right church, it's becoming more important to you than being able to say, I understand and believe the truth. And you've started down a wrong road. You've actually started down, can we say, the Roman road <laughs> in a different sense. I say the Reformation is still relevant today because they discovered the right answers. But let me quickly say, as I see our time is gone, thirdly and finally, because they took those answers to the world. They began to preach what they discovered in the Scriptures. One of the things that Calvin was jealous to do was to make it clear that what he was preaching, what Luther, what the other reformers were preaching, was not new. Rome accused them of bringing something new, upsetting the apple cart by their newness and their novelty. 
Calvin said, all we're doing is preaching what the Bible says. And actually, you can go back and see this was the teaching of the apostles. It's not something new. There's this revolution. Turning back to what had been taught before. And you see the emphasis of those men that we would count as our heroes. They weren't taking the reins of civil government. They weren't starting riots and rebellions to get back at the priests. They were preaching. They were taking truth to the people. They were writing. The reasons I thought it might be fitting to have our brother Stephen Lee come and speak about the vault and the preservation of the sermons and sermon audio is that the technology of our modern era, in some ways many have compared to Gutenberg, the printing press, of course, that in the providence of God was so useful in the proclamation of what they had discovered in the Scriptures to publish it abroad. Here these men let the Gospel take priority. Don't have time to pursue this thought, but if you just file it away, if you look at the role of the church in the world, read through your New Testament. Do you find in Acts that Luke was presenting the history of the church, showing how the church had started the process of taking over the Gentile nations and Christianizing the world? One of Luke's purposes, if you really read carefully in Acts, was to demonstrate for all who would read, Gentile governors and emperors included, they didn't have anything to fear from the church. In fact, one thing they would receive from the church is a lot better people than the ones they had. Now the church's role was not a a kingly function, if you will. It was a prophetic function. To be able to stand before king and drunkard alike and preach the gospel. To preach Christ. Free salvation to all who will come. The reformers took the answers they found in Scripture to the world. They were willing even at the peril of their lives to publish those truths. And here's where I say we're challenged. We think of the relevance of those men in that movement today. Why is it still relevant? Why should we be impacted by it? Because it deals with questions of eternal significance. Because these men discovered, rediscovered the right answers to those questions. That's a constant task for us. Understanding more and more of the truth. 
of the unsearchable riches of Christ and of the simplicity of Christ. And because they took those answers to the world. That's what the world knew of them. Or if I can put it in a phrase we repeat often from this pulpit, what's the first thing that comes to people's mind when you walk into the room or when you come up in conversation? For the Reformers, it was the Gospel. They took those right answers to the world. That's what they were about. That's what we need to be about. In our tumultuous, increasingly violent, evil, and confused world, it is the light of the Gospel, the simplicity of the truth as it is in Jesus, that we need to know and that we need to share. That's a most relevant heritage. It's a simple and yet in some ways difficult task. I pray the Lord will make and keep us faithful to those truths, these truths, and to that task. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come today, we're grateful as we turn the pages of Scripture and see your use of men, in times in some of those extraordinary seasons, even the supernatural use of men. Lord, you've given now your word. In the fullness of its message of Jesus. And we see that season of revival with Luther and Calvin and Knox and Zwingli and so many others. We thank You for the blessings of those days. Thank You for the benefits that flowed from those days that we still enjoy in our own times. But in another season of tumult in this earth, I pray that we would never jettison these truths for some other purpose. A tumultuous Roman Empire was crumbling under the weight of its own sinfulness and wickedness. And a church stepped in to fix things. And the world entered into what we call the dark. Ages. In your providence, the crushing power of that anti-Christian church was, was quelled. And the light of the gospel shone forth afresh in the nations. And now we see nations having cast off the light of the gospel. Again, crumbling under the weight of their own sinfulness and wickedness. Lord, give us grace to hold on to these truths, to with wisdom navigate these waters and constantly show forth the gospel 
the message found in Scripture alone, found in Christ alone, found to be by grace alone, justified by faith alone, and to the glory of God alone. Lord, make and keep these things relevant in our hearts, our minds, and our lives. We ask in Jesus' precious name, Amen.